And if you would, please pray with me. Father, we come to you now and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would do what we could never have happen except by your work, that you would take your word and open both our minds and our hearts to it, that we would understand better, and that we would believe and trust better, that we would know you better through your word. We ask that you would do it, and we ask you would do it in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave us this word and who is our Savior. Amen. Many of you know um, that I'm a long-distance type of guy. Um, I don't mean telephone plans. For those of you who even remember, there's a difference. Um, I mean running and hiking and walking and things like that. Something about me just likes to walk a really long way. Um, Jill and I are a little bit green acres in this respect. Jill's idea of a good hike is go out, walk through a very nice, pretty place, go for a while, eventually get home and clean up and have a nice dinner. My idea of a good hike is 25 to 30 miles, up and down mountains, slurp some half-cooked noodles off your camp stove, and slump into your tent in exhaustion. That's a good day. Except I have one little problem that besets me as a long-distance runner and hiker. I take a lot of wrong turns. I don't have apparently a very good sense of direction. I'll get going, I'll come to a juncture, I'll go down the right trail, and about two miles down the trail I'll say, I know how to read a map. I know how a compass works, and I'm on the wrong trail again. And I have to backtrack a few miles and get back on the right trail and get going where I was. And the problem is, if you're already planning on doing 30, those extra six are a bit of a problem. I just have a bad sense of direction. It's a little easy for me to get lost. Um, Now, fortunately, this tendency isn't too severe. Like I said, I realize a few miles into it what's going on, and I get myself back and get on the right track. But it can be problematic. In in San Francisco one time, I was visiting friends, and I decided I'd go run across the Golden Gate Bridge and back. And they lived about, I don't know, three miles from the bridge. It's about a mile and a half across it one way. So I said, okay, nine-mile run. I can do this. Set off while they went to work, had a delightful time, came back across the bridge and hit the Presidio and took a wrong turn. And another wrong turn. And another wrong turn. Three hours... And 20 miles later, now at a very slow running pace, I drag myself back to their front door. But still, the whole point was to go running, so who cares, right? But have you ever been really lost? Not where like, oh yeah, I'll figure it out, but I really don't know where I am. And and magnify it more, if you've ever been lost in a place that's just vaguely threatening, it can be so disorienting and so worrying And just to get a little more metaphorical about it, there are profound episodes of lostness in every one of our lives that are just deeply disorienting and disturbing. There's being lost upon the death of your spouse. Or maybe in some ways, a lot of ways maybe even worse, being lost when your spouse suddenly says, I don't want you anymore. Or there's the lostness of having had your job end and suddenly you're at home with no idea how to spend your time at a loss for what to do. Or there's the vocational lostness of just not knowing what God has really made me to do on this earth. Or the lostness of being estranged from family or friends. All these kinds of lostness, when life really doles them out, they are deeply discouraging 
and deeply disorienting. And the point of Luke 15 this morning, the point that we want to drive to, is that Luke 15 tells us that we are all lost and that we need to be found. That we're all lost and we need to be found. And to see that, we're going to look at only two things this morning. First, being lost outside the house. That's the sheep. And second, being lost inside the house. That's the coin. And my argument's going to be this. Every one of us here falls into one of those two categories. So as we do this, ask yourself, which am I? Which am I? So first, let's look at being lost outside the house. So the situation in Luke 15 is this. Jesus has been hanging around in Galilee and teaching and discipling, and he's attracting a greater and greater and greater following, all these people who flock to him to hear his message. But they're not the people you would call, shall we say, um, polite company. They're tax collectors and sinners, according to verse 1. Well, who are these people? Well, if you hear tax collectors, you and I immediately think what? IRS agent. It's not quite the right image. Go for something more on the level of dirty cop. See, here's how it worked. Judea, the land was under Roman occupation. Now, the Romans didn't just go conquer the known world for the fun of it. They conquered the known world to try to get revenue from it. And the trick is, administratively, how do you do that? And the way the Romans did it is they established tax burdens on the countries and nations and areas they'd conquered. And the way they collected the taxes is they hired local people to be tax collectors. So they would establish a person who was a tax collector from the local populace, and they'd give that person a set, a, a set amount. This is how much money you owe to Rome. You go get it out of the people around you. Think about that for a second. It creates a situation that is just ripe for abuse, doesn't it? And in fact, it often was terribly abused. Tax collectors would extort far more money from the local populace. Remember, they're countrymen than was needed. They would get rich. They would feather their nests on the backs of all the poor people around them. So to the average Jew, a tax collector was a sellout to the occupying force who was greedy, swindling, abusive, and rich. The average Jew hated a tax collector. Now, there was another set of people who, instead of getting rich off the Roman occupation, had had the exact opposite thing happen. The word sinners here, the way it gets used by the Pharisees and the scribes, is almost a technical term, and it stands for a group of people who, in the face of the economic disaster that this situation created, had just sort of given up. And they'd, been, they'd given up in all the same ways you would even see things like this happen today. Some of them had turned to drinking to just numb the pain and the difficulty. Some of them had turned to petty crime to try to get enough to get by. Many of the women had turned to prostitution because it was the easiest and only thing they could come up with to do to, to eat. And the, if you want to put it this way, the good people, we're going to come back and challenge that term, but the good people looked at these folks and said, they're sinners. They have embraced a sinful lifestyle. They have walked away from what God would have. They are a bad influence, and you are best to steer away from them. So they basically said, they're undesirables. They're bad influences. 
We don't want their type here. And Jesus is surrounded by these very undesirables, tax collectors and sinners. And far from shunning them, he welcomed them. Verse 2 tells us he hung out with them, he sat down with them, he talked with them, he ate with them, he engaged. Now there's this third group, really two groups, but we can lump them together for purposes of this passage, called the Pharisees and the Scribes. These are the religious leaders of the day, the people who thought of themselves as the morally upright ones, the good ones, the one who kept God's law. And so they saw Jesus hanging out with all these undesirables, these bad influences, and verse 2 tells us they grumbled. As far as they saw it, Jesus was accepting and tacitly even justifying the behavior of all these tax collectors and sinners with whom he hung out. And the image of the lost sheep is very transparently, when Jesus uses it in verses 4 to 7, the image for this type of person. And you hear the same phrasing even in English. He's a lost soul, or she's a wandering soul, or something like that. It's an easy image for the people of the time to understand. In a society that raised sheep, whether you were on the top or the bottom of the society, there's a flock in the field. They're where they're supposed to be. They're safe, they're cared for, they're protected, they're growing, they're in the shepherd's care, and happily so. But then one little sheep wanders away from the flock. Happily at first, just sort of following its own nose. But sheep are really witless creatures. And before long, it's lost, helpless, unable to find its way back, and in a good bit of danger, both from its environment and from whatever wild animal might wander along. These tax collectors and sinners were the lost sheep, the ones who've wandered away from God's people, who've gone their own way and are not living in their master's plan. To bring the image from back then to now, the lost sheep is the person who isn't living among God's people who's wandered away, who doesn't show up in a church building or in a religious context, who's happy on his or her own when it comes to morality or faith or ethics or anything of that nature. So if you here today somehow, not even sure how you got here, don't identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, if you're not one of God's people, you're the sheep who wandered off. And speaking as a pastor, let me tell you something about a lost sheep. Lost sheep were great. Here's why. You know it. If you're a lost sheep, you know you're lost. You're under no illusion about who you are. You've gone your own way. You're good with that. You're not kidding yourself or, or anybody else to say you're God, part of God's people. The whole point has been to say that you're not this. And a lost sheep, if you're one, may be still happy about it, still following your own nose down the trail. Or maybe unhappy about it, having gotten into real danger and thinking, how did I get here? But either way, if you're a lost sheep, you probably know it. This isn't a place of illusion about who you are. But you are, if you're here today as a lost sheep, living in a place of illusion, most likely. Not about who you are, but about who God is. We have a dear family friend who, he grew up with a faith of some sort. I don't know exactly what it was. Um, but a church in some sense, and he would very forthright tell you, forthrightly tell you he is a lost sheep. And so it's always this, whenever you broach the topic with him of coming to church or of thinking about faith or understanding God's love, he looks at you and says, oh, with everything I've done, I've got to clean up my act a long way before I'm ever coming back to God. That is an illusion. 
That is a falsehood. Lost sheep, hear me clearly. God is ready for you right where you are. And Jesus tells this very simple story to illustrate God's attitude towards you. And that attitude is not one of anger or vindictiveness or desire that you should suffer for your sins or anything else. He says, look, imagine there's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. They're out in the field. One of them wanders off. He says, hey, doesn't that shepherd drop everything, leave the place of the flock, leave the place of safety, and go looking for the sheep? And when he finds the sheep, doesn't he pick it up and throw it behind his neck with two legs on either side and carry it back with joy? And when he gets back, doesn't he, he doesn't lecture the sheep about what he did wrong or make the sheep suffer for wandering off. Doesn't he call all his friends together and say, rejoice with me. It's wonderful. I found my lost sheep. And it's a simple story that Jesus tells with the obvious implication being Of course that's what happens. All the listeners who are deeply aware of how shepherding works would say, of course he does. That's exactly how it happens when a shepherd has a lost sheep. So lost sheep, hear what God thinks of you. He's the shepherd and he's searching for you. What you need to hear is that God's ready to put you on his shoulders and bring you back. You don't need to earn anything. You don't need to clean up your act first. You don't need to anything other than sit back and let your daddy carry you home. You just need to repent, to admit that this whole running from God thing isn't good, to turn around and see the shepherd who's been tracking you down the trail, who is after forgiving you and bringing you back with joy and peace and goodness and his grace. Jesus loves you. Now look, Jesus never says your bad stuff is okay, but he doesn't have to. You're under no illusion that you're living God's way. So he doesn't need to tell you what you already know. But when he gets you, he's going to carry you home. He's not telling you it's all right to be lost, that nothing needs to change. What he's telling you is that he will bring you back with mercy and care and tender love, that he will make you different in ways you can barely imagine because it's good for you. So lost sheep, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves you, and he has come after you to bring you home to God. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Nice and warm and fuzzy and, oh, yeah. But I dare say, I dare say that the people listening to Jesus at this point would not have been happy with this story. Here's why. Look at verse 3. Who is the them to whom Jesus tells this story? It's the scribes and the Pharisees from verse 2. And they probably weren't even very happy with the first parable, this parable of the lost sheep. But you can go to the bank on the fact that they wouldn't have been happy with the second parable, the lost coin. Here's why. Jesus goes on and tells this other story. He says, look, imagine a woman. She's got ten little silver coins, and she loses one in her home. Doesn't she do anything? everything she could to find that coin. And it's not as far-fetched of a story as you might think. You're talking about ancient houses, relatively poor folks, small windows made of mud and brick, little to no light inside, dirt floors. You drop a small coin somewhere. It can take some work to find it. So what does the woman do? She throws open the windows. She lights lamps. She sweeps across the floor trying to kick up the dust 
turn over this coin so that it'll flash in the little light that's available inside. She'll be able to find the lost coin. Everything else stops because she's after that coin because it's valuable. Just like the lost sheep, this is a simple story designed to make everybody hearing it say, of course, that's exactly what she'd do. And when she finds the coin, she rejoices. So how do you understand this story? Well, the first thing for it to make sense we've got to understand is that this is a parallel lostness. Just like the sheep was lost, now the coin is lost. Just like the shepherd was out searching and searching and searching, so the woman is in searching and searching and searching. Just like the shepherd calls together his friends and neighbors and rejoices, so the woman calls together her friends and neighbors and rejoices. Everything about these stories is set up to show that they are clearly parallel. Except one thing. What's that one thing? That one thing is the key point, given that everything else is the same. The difference between the two stories is this. The sheep is lost out in the field, away from anything that's the household of faith. The coin is lost, just as lost, mind you, completely parallel, inside the house, right where it's supposed to be, but still lost. So the point should start coming clear to us. We can be just as lost inside the household of God, inside the church, as you would be if you were one of these lost sheep. This is what would have infuriated the scribes and the Pharisees listening. Jesus is saying that there is no difference. There are plenty of people, he says, inside the household of God who are lost coins. Sure, they're not public rebels, they're not public sinners, they aren't tax collectors. They're good people. In every respect, they look like the kind of guy you'd want your daughter to marry. But they're lost. They're moral. They're religious. They're in the household of God. Often they're in church on every Sunday. They know their Bibles. They follow the rules. They work diligently to honor God's ways. They give much of their money to the church and to good causes. They're leaders. And they're lost. Just as lost as the wayward sheep who left the fold. The scribes and the Pharisees would have gotten it because I just described them. They were all these things. They were law keepers, money givers, Bible knowers, church leaders, so to speak. And Jesus had just told them that they were just as lost as any of those sinners and tax collectors that they were despising and judging. In God's eyes, they were the same. And here's the really pernicious thing about being a lost coin. A coin lost inside the household of God You may not know that you're lost. At least the lost sheep knows it. But the lost coins are often completely unaware that they're lost. After all, they're the ones who stayed home. They're the ones who stayed in the house of God. They did all the religious stuff. These are the God followers. Did I just describe you? I mean, are you a giver to the church? Are you a long-term church attender? Do you know your Bible? Are you a church leader? So far, you've only made it to scribe and Pharisee. Remember, they were the equivalent of church leaders. They were us, and we are them. And just like being a scribe or a Pharisee didn't make you any less lost than being a tax collector or sinner, so being a church person today doesn't make us any less lost than a lost sheep who scorns the church. We can be just as lost within these walls as outside of them. The only difference is that you might not realize it. It's really easy 
to use our religion and our religious activities to, in fact, mask our lostness, to use morality to cover over the fact that we don't really know God and his grace. Being inside the visible church doesn't save us. We can be just as lost inside the house of God as outside of it. Now, that should be kind of scary. So how do you know if you're lost inside the house? Could we be fooled? Could we be fooling ourselves? Could we be lost inside the church without even knowing it? Well, the answer is yes. So how would we tell? Let me suggest four things all directly out of this passage, four indicators that you yourself might be a lost coin. First, you grumble instead of rejoicing. Look what God does, what all of heaven does when a sinner repents. God rejoices, the angels throw a party. It's the greatest news possible. Is it to you? Are you a rejoicing person? Or are you a grumbler? Do you hate it when people don't get what they deserve? When people get off scot-free for their sins, I mean, do you always sort of even envy or dislike the person who becomes a Christian right before they die because they got to have all the fun and then got away with it? Does that seem wrong to you? Does grace bug you in some basic level? Are you jealous? Do you grumble at grace? Second, do you avoid tax collectors and sinners? Now we're going from preaching to meddling. Remember, that's what set the whole thing off, right? The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious people, look down on Jesus because he's hanging out with the undesirables. Do you avoid them? Do you avoid people who need grace? Do you sit in judgment of their sins? Do you think they have no place at the table with you? Is there a bad influence? Look, undesirables come in all shapes and sizes. Are you extending hospitality to some of them? Any of them? How are you welcoming them at your meals? How are you receiving them? Are, you, are they attracted to you the same way they were attracted to Jesus? Try it to yourself. Name some tax collectors and sinners that you receive. People with whom you eat in warmth and fellowship. If there are none, maybe you're more of a lost coin than you ever realized. Third, do you just have this need for religious leaders to denounce sinners? I mean, are you continually unhappy if a religious leader or a talking head isn't strong enough pounding against sin? Are you continually unhappy if a pastor isn't standing for, unri- for righteousness? Now look, you want your pastors, you want your leaders to be righteous. But is it, the only, is it the only string you play on the harp? Is it the only sound? Does the need to declare right and wrong drown out the need to have joy? Well, if so, you might be more of a lost coin than you realize. Fourth, does this image of God as a searcher bother you? And does it seem too demeaning for God that he would go pandering after little lost sheep that he would go sweeping the floor, that he chases after sinners, is that somehow in your mind just beneath God, beneath his dignity? Do you feel like it compromises his majesty? Does it bother you to think that God might be this way? If so, well, that's the image that bothered the scribes and the Pharisees. And it may mean that you're a little more of a lost coin than you ever realized. So let me ask you, are you a lost coin? Even if you've been in the church for years, for decades, maybe your whole life, you might be. Being familiar with Christianity, 
knowing the lingo, keeping the rules, that doesn't save you. You may still be a lost coin. If those questions hit home, if you realize that you've got a lot of scribe or a lot of Pharisee in you, you realize you've got a view of church as where the good people go, then you need to hear this. God is sweeping the floor looking for you. He's thrown open the windows. He's stirring up the dust, just waiting to find his lost coin, which is you. And look at verse 10. You are called for the same thing. There is joy in heaven from God and the angels when you do what? When you repent. Well, wait, repent of what? I haven't done anything wrong. That's the whole point. I've stayed in the church. I've done what I should. Repent of exactly that. The self-righteousness, the pride. Repent of the fact that you can't stand the thought that God's a seeker after grace. Repent of the idea that you're good enough. Repent of the idea that you thought you sacrificed enough, that God owes you something. And at this point, you could get the impression that the world divides into these two types of people, lost sheep and lost coin. And in one sense, that's precisely true, except that it's not that hopeless. There's a third way. But here's the key. The third way is not to be righteous, to somehow deserve God's favor. That's the whole point of the story of the lost coin. It's the whole point the Pharisees and scribes needed to hear. The first story, the lost sheep, would have been a corrective to them. Hey, lighten up. Be excited when people repent. But the second story would have made them angry because it would have showed that their very righteousness, what they thought was their righteousness, had left them just as lost as the sheep they scorned. And let me be careful to prove that point biblically. Look at verse 7 and look at verse 10 right beside each other. Notice there's one other difference between these two stories. Verse 7 says there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who don't need repentance. That's the story to recalibrate the scribes and the Pharisees, to make them realize they should be glad that all these sinners and tax collectors are coming to Jesus. And you'd expect verse 10 to say the exact same thing since everything else has been parallel, right? But it doesn't say the same thing. It cuts off halfway through. It just says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Verse 10 no longer leaves the second half. It no longer leaves the implication that there may be some who are righteous and don't need to repent. In verse 7, the scribes might have had room to think that they were part of the 99. And in verse 10, Jesus cuts that off. He says, they need to repent too, even though they've never strayed from the household of God. Because as Paul puts it in Romans, there is no one righteous, not even one. So the third way is not to be righteous. Instead, the third way is to be found. You know, think back to my hiking again. I tend to get a little lost, but it's fixable. I know how to use a map. I know how to use a compass. I don't take dumb risks. It's okay. But think even of the news the past week or two, that couple of um, teenagers who were hiking north of L.A., who were emaciated, dehydrated, hallucinating. They could not save themselves. They had to be found by searchers. And when it comes to you and to me, God is the searcher. Inside or outside the church, either way, you and I need to be found by God. That's why we say that salvation is by grace alone. We don't earn it. All are lost and all need God to find us. So if you're a lost sheep, 
you need to see this because you have probably thought that the church was a bunch of good people who were judging you. No, the church is a bunch of bad people who've been found. And if you're a lost coin, you probably need to see this. You've probably thought that the church was a good place where you go to hang out with a bunch of other good people. No, the church is a place where people who've been found come together to worship the God who found them. And God is seeking you, every one of us. In these passages, you see God seeking so diligently, first in the image of a shepherd tracking through the wilderness, second in the image of a housewoman tracking through her own house. But let me tell you how hard he seeks you. Jesus, who told these stories, was God incarnate, come to seek you. God in heaven, the creator of this whole world, did not think it too much to enter creation, to become incarnate as a human being. Why? To chase after you and after me who were lost. The incarnation is Jesus Christ, God the Son, coming as the shepherd to seek his lost sheep. It is God the Son, Jesus Christ, coming as the woman to seek the lost coin. And then Jesus Christ, as he literally, physically, really dies on the cross, that is when the shepherd scoops you, the lost sheep, up on his shoulders and carries you home out of danger. That is when the woman inside the house sees the glint of the coin and picks it up and it is no longer lost. As Jesus dies on the cross for your and my sin, he is saving the lost. And then three days later, as he really, truly, physically, just as real as he died, rises bodily from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ has carried you home. He has picked you back up. He has found you. Will you be found by him? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray the same thing we just prayed at the start 20 minutes ago. May you... May you, via the Holy Spirit, open our minds and our hearts that we would believe. Lord, if we are either, as we sit here, a lost sheep or a lost coin, and we have never realized that we were lost, that we were estranged from you, that we were not right with God, make it real to us now, we pray. And all of us who have been found, Lord, We pray you would make that real to us. That we would never slide away from living in light of the grace we've received and your goodness to us. That we would never turn to being righteous enough or anything else, but that we would just rest in your grace. Give us the grace that we could do that, Lord, to your glory and our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.